I do want to, I don't want to wish you all a happy Memorial Day. That's really not the purpose of that holiday. It's really a, a time to reflect on the cost and sacrifice of many, many thousands of, of our soldiers who've, who've died. Um, and so we, we want to we wanna remember their sacrifice. We live in a great country uh, that does afford us the freedom to worship without governmental interference. Um, but our hope is not in that, and our freedom doesn't consist or isn't found there. And so we know that. Our freedom is in Christ, as we just sung. We are uh, free from uh, the guilt of sin and the penalty of death, as we just sang. And um, that's our hope. That's our true freedom where it lies. But we are thankful for a country that allows us to express that worship without fear of persecution right now. Uh, I do want to say, while people are bringing their uh, kids to kids' class and make their way back down, we have a friend of our church. Her husband got really sick this weekend while they're in Mexico, got salmonella, and was actually air to San Diego. His name is Doug Drake. It's Linda Drake's husband. And we've been praying for him all week, and he's, he's uh, just not doing well at all. And so I do want to take a moment and pray for him, if you would. Um, pray for them throughout the week as you think of him. She's in San Diego with him, away from home. Um, and uh, just pray for the Lord's will, and pray, um, if it's his will, that he recover. If not, that he be glorified. Um, so let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much. Um, for the life that your son gives us. Father, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit where we've been born again into your image as your child, as we've just sung. Father, where our hope has been taken out of this world and placed in heaven with you, where neither moth nor rust can affect it. It remains undefiled, prepared to be revealed in that last glorious day. And as John says, we have no idea what we will appear like, but we know that we will be like you because we will finally, in the culmination of all history, be able to look upon you with our own eyes. So, fathers, we pray for Mr. Drake and her husband, Lynn, or her, his wife, Linda. Father, I know she's, um, she's struggling watching her husband suffer. The family's worried about losing a father, and especially in such sudden circumstances, Lord. So I just pray, Father, that you uphold their hearts by faith, that you fix their hope on you, not in, in his recovery even necessarily. Father, that if death does come, then um, you've conquered the grave. And that's where we want to we place our hope, Father, that you'd strengthen her with those truths because they are great indeed. That you'd strengthen him. Lord, selfishly, selfishly we do want to pray for his recovery. And Father, if it's your will, you can gain glory in that as well. And you'd, you'd have a living soul to praise you. But Father, we... Uh, we don't just praise you with the good. We praise you in the bad, as Job said. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be your name. So, Father, we, uh, we want to keep mindful of them and their situation. So help us throughout the week to remember them. 
Father, bless your word to us this morning and open it up to our understanding to see these truths that we can walk by, that we can take and apply to our own life, Lord. Fathers, we remember Memorial Day. Thank you for their sacrifice. I know many, many have died protecting this country, but Father, we want to pray for our soldiers, active duty. Father, above all, they would know you. They would know life. They would know truth. They would know righteousness, Father, because they are going so often into harm's way where death is a very real reality for many of them. Father, may they go having conquered the grave already in Christ Jesus. Just as we saw with Stephen, Father, his death meant much fruit. Thank you for the freedom you do give us, Lord. We pray for those government forces uh, that are trying to erode the freedoms we've been given. Father, I pray you rebuke them strongly. Um, Father, that you'd see that they would not kick against the goads. But Father, that we'd repent and come and follow you as a nation. That we'd turn from our wickedness and find blessing in Christ. Father, send your spirit to convict us to break us, to purge us of those things that are strongholds in our life, that are keeping us from a knowledge of Christ. Father, give us who know you boldness and power to preach your word as we've seen in Acts so wonderfully. Help us to say it clearly in love, but in the fear of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last week we covered Acts 7 verse 1 all the way through Acts 8 verse 3 and it was the death of of Stephen a powerful powerful passage Um, but it ends with Stephen's death and the continuation of persecution as much as we'd like to think that Stephen's death would would satisfy the blood lust of those who hate Christ it didn't in fact it only fanned that flame And we're told last week in verse 3 of chapter 8 that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. In fact, Paul himself would later testify after his conversion, he killed and imprisoned many, many saints, a truth that haunted him um, and which pushed him to confess he was the most unworthy of all the sinners as well as the apostles to receive apostleship and grace. Yet he took it. We're going to move forward in the book of Acts and look at Philip, who if you look real quickly in chapter 6, when they put forward the seven different men to serve the church, they first put forward in six, Acts 6, 5, Stephen, who we've looked at extensively now. He was said to be a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And next is listed Philip. The other five men, we don't really know or hear anything about them. We get a lot of information about Stephen, and we get quite a bit of information about Philip. In fact, later on in the book of Acts, we're going to be reintroduced to Philip um, as he's still alive toward the end of Paul's life. Um, He became known not as Philip the deacon, but Philip the evangelist, and fulfilled that ministry quite well. I was reading a bunch this week, and I read the oldest... um, sermon that we have full copies of the manuscript of. Besides the biblical texts, um, it's an anonymous sermon. We don't know who wrote it. 
Um, and our best guess is it's around 150 AD. It was based out of Isaiah 54, 1. That verse says this, Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of, who, of her who is married, says the Lord. I want to read a couple excerpts. Um, from that, well, before I want to, before I read those excerpts, here's some points for us to consider as we enter into this passage. Okay, first, Stephen's death in no way deterred the mission of the church. In fact, it only inflamed it. There's a great tendency in our flesh, with the threat of persecution, to stop doing what's causing the persecution. When we're walking in the Spirit, however, we recognize persecution is very often the gateway of the Lord. And so rather than hindering the mission, it opened wide a door that wasn't there previously. In fact, what we're starting to see is the church is now moving into greater fulfillment of the mission Jesus said in Acts 1.8, where he said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's exactly what's happening now. They're actually compelled through persecution into greater obedience to Christ. But there's an important point as well, this last point. And by the way, real quick, is that print too small for you guys? Because last week I was told it was too small, so I've got it larger. I can get it larger still. I'll just have to have like 50 slides. It's too small for you guys? Okay, in the very back. I'm trying to be mindful of these things and, and tailor it, so... Well, you know, there's lots of empty seats up here, Jerry. <laughs> All right. The church, lastly, is moving away from the tyranny of localized worship. And what we mean is this. For centuries, Judaism, uh, Islam, every form of religion has had centralized locations of worship where you had to travel to these sacred sites to truly worship God. That was tyrannical in a lot of ways because not everybody could do that. And it meant immediately you're in non-compliance or disobedience to the Lord. It caused geographical and societal boundaries and divisions as well. We see that in Israel today. How hotly contested is that one little piece of land in Jerusalem? The Temple Mount. Because the Muslim's temple is on it, and yet it's the mount of the Jewish holy temple. And constant friction is associated with it. Jesus, in the creation of the church, as his body, universal, has taken away this kind of tyranny and this kind of division. We're going to see that. Let me read these exhortations from this sermon to you. Again, this is an anonymous sermon. We don't know who gave it. Who gave it. But he says this, Brothers, ceasing to tarry in this world, let us do the will of him who called us. And let us not be afraid to leave this world. For the Lord said, You will be like lambs among wolves. But Peter replied, saying, What if the wolves tear the lambs to pieces? And Jesus said to Peter, After their death, the lambs should not fear the wolves, nor should you fear those who kill you and can do nothing more to you. But fear him who, when you are dead has the power over soul and body to cast them into the flames of hell. 
You must realize, brothers, that our stay in this world of the flesh is slight and short. But Christ's coming, or Christ's promise is great and wonderful and means rest in the coming kingdom and in eternal life. What then must we do to get these things, except to lead a holy and upright life and to regard these things of the world as alien to us and not to desire them? There's more I'm going to talk about. How, how awesome is this, though? We've just read Stephen's martyrdom. And just a few decades after that, maybe a hundred years after that, what are they still talking about? We're going to suffer. This was part of the DNA of the early church. And they were exhorting the Christians to endure, knowing where our hope lies. But the sermon continues, saying this, Now that we believe, we have become more numerous than those who seemed to have God. And another scripture says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This means that those perishing must be saved. Yes, a great and wonderful thing it is to support not the things which are standing, but those which are collapsing. Thus it was that the Christ willed to save what was perishing. And he saved many when he came and called us who were actually perishing. That's what we're going to look at today. Last week we looked at the first part of that sermon, Stephen's persecution. This, in the same sermon is exactly what's happening as Philip goes down to Samaria. This is so awesome. From suffering to scattered. If you will remember, in John chapter 4, 19-20, Jesus went through Samaria and he took his disciples intentionally through there, though at the time they wanted to go around. They didn't want anything to do with Samaria because the text says Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. They couldn't believe Jesus was going through these half-breeds land. Here's what Jesus said to the woman he met at the well. The woman says to him, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. In our account, those words spoken by Jesus are now actually going to be fulfilled with Philip. Let's read our text, Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. <coughs> it says this, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. The church on the move. As I said, persecution didn't stop preaching, it encouraged it. All of those who scattered out of Jerusalem, remember how big of a crowd this is. We're, we're told actually in uh, Acts 8.1 that the church was scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. 
The way I interpret that is the rest of the church scattered. Probably not all of them. But remember how large at this point the church had grown. Upwards of 15,000 people. A bomb explodes in Jerusalem with Stephen's death, and the church, like Anne's, goes everywhere, not in hiding, but in victory, taking the gospel with them. They are on the move. And in verse 5, it says, Philip, being one of those who was scattered, goes down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. This is a pivotal point in the history of our church. This is a huge, pivotal point. As I said earlier, they are now following the progression Jesus spoke of in Acts 1.8, that they shall be my witnesses in all of Judea and Samaria. Here's a little graph. The center there being Acts chapters 1 through 8. It was focused on Jerusalem. It moves outward to the next ring, Acts 8 through 12. It's going to focus on Judea and Samaria. When we get to chapter 12, to the end of the book of Acts, it will represent the gospel going out as far as Rome, the known world at that point. So down to Samaria. Samaria was primed for the gospel, to give you some background information on it. Their theology taught that there would be a coming Messiah. Now, Samaria's history was rather checkered theologically. They'd fallen into some serious heresy, reformed their teachings somewhat, so that now they at least at this time believed in a coming Messiah called the Tahib. And this Messiah of theirs would one day come to their holy mountain, their place of worship, as the woman says, right? You Jews say we worship in Jerusalem. We say we need to worship at our holy mountain. Their theology taught the Messiah would come there. Jesus' answer was, it's neither. The day is coming when you will worship me in spirit and truth, not at a location. Philip, if you look down, jump down to verse 12 real quick. What Philip was preaching to them was the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Here's verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. It's so significant knowing the history of the Samaritans at this point. In fact, Philip's preaching to them that their, their Messiah is actually the Messiah of all people. Jesus said it this way, salvation is first of the Jews, right? And then the Gentiles. We Jews understand the theology of the Messiah. You may be wrong, but there's existence in your belief, a belief of a Messiah at least. So in that sense, they were primed. Philip grabs hold of that and uses it to plug the gospel in there. This is so important as far as an application for us. So many people that don't know the Lord yet are primed to receive him based on some of the beliefs they've inherited. If we would only preach Christ and his kingdom to them. So often fear holds us back from, well, I don't know what they say. They'll say, I don't know what they believe. I don't know where they're at. It's okay. Preach Christ and his kingdom. That is a message of inclusion. It's a message of hope. He is for you as well as us. Remember the hostility between the Samaritans, the Jews were fierce. For the Samaritans to see Philip coming to them, 
who is more than likely, remember, a Hellenistic Jew, not a Hebraic Jew. Yet he's coming to them and saying, look, this kingdom of the Messiah and the Messiah himself is for you also. How many walls would that have broken down in their heart? Where there was once hostility, he comes preaching peace, preaching the good news, offering it to them. And obviously the passage says that Philip was doing many signs. He was casting out many demons. He, he wasn't an apostle. This is why I personally don't believe that um, the sign gifts, the miracles, was limited to the apostles. Here's one example that contradicts that. Nonetheless, they operated in that sense as a sign, a verification of what he was preaching. Something similar happened with Jesus and the woman at the well. Remember when Jesus is speaking to her, she goes back in the town and says, Hey, this man's told me everything I've ever done. I think he's the prophet. Served as a sign, right? Philip comes and does the same thing, preaching the good news of the kingdom. I love what G. Campbell Morgan said. And including the Samaritans, right? That Jesus is Savior, not just of the Jews, but of all people. He said this, the Jews may have no dealings with Samaritans, but Christians do. Christians do. Think of somebody, a group maybe, in your life, who you feel you have no dealings with. And that's this passage. Waypoint may not have anything to do with so-and-so, but Jesus does. Let's flip it around. The gospel is powerful enough, as we're going to see in the case of Simon, to reach anybody if we would take it with that belief in heart. It reaches down into the lowest places where the most division happens, and it saves those souls. Consequently, we read in verse 8 that there was much joy in the city. No doubt. No doubt, the Samaritans knew well their history and division with the Jews. And now Philip's telling them, the Messiah's for us too? Jesus is visiting us too? We have part in the kingdom too? That would create much joy in anybody. Not only at the sight of their loved ones being healed, their sick being healed, those who are demon-possessed being set free, they're told salvation is for them. I love that point. How often we let fear hinder us from preaching the good news. Why don't we dwell upon the joy that may enter that soul instead? Let that motivate us. Having been set free, the joy that may await those people who hear. In fact, the text goes on to say that they receive the Holy Spirit. Let's pick it up in verse 9. And this is intentional. It starts off, verse 9 says, But there was a man named Simon. So this is going to be a contrast, okay? There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God, which is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. 
Verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now when they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit, Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. So he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I may lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter says to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. <coughs> so we're going to deal with Simon last of all. Okay? What I want to highlight right now is the rest of the people of Samaria. The apostles here in verse 14 that Samaria had received the word of God. So Peter and John... Two of the apostles still centered in Jerusalem, head down to Samaria, and they pray that the Samaritans would receive the Holy Spirit. He'd, at that point, not yet been given. This brings up the question, why was the Spirit not given when they heard and believed? It's a difficult question, especially given some other passages, such as Ephesians 1.13. Paul says it this way, In him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul says it very clearly. It's upon hearing the gospel and believing it, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2 real quickly. Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost. After preaching to those Jews, in verse 38, Peter says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Okay? We're actually never told that they did receive the Holy Spirit, though we are told they believed and were baptized. We know, verse 41 says this, that there were added to that day, to the church, about 3,000 souls. So obviously they received the Holy Spirit. We're never told that in the text, though. So how do we explain why had the Holy Spirit not been given at this point? Here's, here's my answer to that, okay? And some people, some scholars, will say, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think there is some evidence in the text, however. Peter and John, as apostles, could, with authority, verify God has moved from Jerusalem to Samaria. Salvation is extending outward, right? Being apostles, they could verify this with their authority as apostles, that God has opened up salvation to them as well. I think this is the reason for God delaying and giving the Spirit. The apostles needed to verify this move. This is exactly, by, by the way, what happens in Acts 10 when God moves still further out to Cornelius, the Gentiles. Peter is sent to Cornelius. 
he sees the Spirit fall on Cornelius and all who believe. They speak in tongues, and Peter in Acts 11 has to testify, God gave them the Spirit just as he did us. Okay? Every step of the way, God is using his apostles to verify the moves that God is making. That's not the common way, according to Scripture. The Spirit is given when one hears and believes. But these are significant strides and developments in the church. And so I believe what God is doing is he's using his apostles to verify God is in this, to testify to it. That's my answer. I, I, uh, I think it's supported in that text as well as other texts. So let's move now to deal with the larger portion of this text, the man named Simon, okay? There is much debate and speculation over this man. What I'm going to do is I'm going to lay out before us what the text says, okay? I was talking to Charles about this point. I was vexed all week over this passage, and I learned some very important lessons that I'll reiterate to those of you who are coming to the Tuesday night study by the way, on how to study. So what we are told by the text itself is that Simon had previously practiced magic, right? He held the people in amazement. He claimed himself to be something great. In fact, the very power of God, which is called great. He was a master magician. Simon Magus, as some think a a historical figure refers to this same man, That's what Magus means, Simon the Magician. What else we are told about him in verses 12 and 13 is that at Philip's preaching, Simon believed. Simon believed at his preaching, not because of the signs. He was amazed by the signs, but he believed at his preaching. He was also baptized, and he also continued to follow Philip. So Philip's down in Samaria for some time. But Simon was definitely amazed at the signs and great miracles. That's pretty understandable. Being a magician, he practiced his art through cunning. Philip did no such thing. He practiced his through the power of God working in him. Simon saw that and was amazed. Wow, how are you doing that? So at this point, I need to point out that there's really no discernible distinction between the faith and belief of Simon with the rest of the people of Samaria. They all believe, they all are baptized, they all continue with Philip, and none of them receive the Holy Spirit. There's no distinction between them. All were amazed at the signs Philip was doing. So, they all received, they all believed, and they all followed in obedience with baptism. That is important to note as we move forward. Okay? What we are also told in verses 18 and 19 of this passage is that when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, he offered money to the apostles for the ability to give the Spirit with the laying on of his hands. (coughs) Excuse me. So to the first point, there must have been some sort of visible sign or manifestation when the Spirit was given. So Simon saw that the Spirit had come upon them. There must have been some kind of visible manifestation which rendered that noticeable. More than likely, it was the manifestation of speaking in tongues. That's the case with every other manifestation when the Spirit came, including in Acts 10, as well as Acts 
Uh, later on in Acts, Acts 21, I think, when uh, uh, the disciples of John the Baptist received the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, the second point there, that Simon offered them money, you got to understand this, and every commentator says this, this is a well-known historical fact, that Simon, who had previously been a magician, it would have almost been natural in his carnal state to offer money, because that's what magicians did for each other. When they came upon another magician, they would pay each other for their trade secrets. That's how they acquired their abilities and their trades. So it's quite natural, Simon the magician, to offer money for the ability to give the spirit. Okay? When you, if you don't know that piece of information, it's, you read the text differently, right? But it is well known, this is what magicians did. That's how they practiced their craft. So here's where interpretations begin to vary. When Peter rebukes him, in verse 20, Peter says this, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And then in verse 21, he says this, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Many commentators move from this point forward to interpret this account to show that Simon's faith was indeed a false faith. Those who interpret the passage this way say this. First of all, Simon Magus, the magician, is a prominent figure in post-apostolic literature, and he is. He's described, for instance, as the first heretic in post-apostolic literature. He's described as the father of Gnosticism which is a major movement even today. He was described as a constant adversary to Peter. In fact, there's even some accounts that seem more far-fetched that say in Rome, Simon and Peter had somewhat of a duel in miracle working. And Peter always outdid him. That seems far-fetched to me. We do know Peter was in Rome. But there's even the early church father, Justin, if you've heard of him, Justin was from the same area as Simon, and he knew who he was. Justin talked about how Simon's magic power secured him a large following, even outside of his native land. Simon was a well-known magician and secured amazement from much people. In fact, his followers, known as the Simonians, survived until at least the middle of the 3rd century A.D. That was the influence of this man on the culture around him. Further, they argue that Simon did not, did not demonstrate true faith. In fact, they, as an example of this kind of faith that Simon only believed because of the miracles, they quote John chapter 2, where Jesus calls that kind of faith out. Hey, you believe because you saw the signs. Well, that is a false kind of faith. But the text doesn't say that. The text says he believed it as preaching and was amazed at the miracles. They argue that he didn't show true repentance because when Peter said, pray... That the Lord, in verse 22, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven. We're not told whether Simon ever did go and pray. All we're told is that Simon says to Peter, pray for me to the Lord. And others will still argue further that Simon is only interested in advancing his own career. He was all about the power, the authority, and when he saw the apostles' ability to give the Spirit by the laying on of hands, in line with his magician background, he wanted that. Those are all reasons. This is where, however, with these points, 
I will put out a word of caution as a church and as individuals how we approach a text of Scripture that's difficult. None of these points, save possibly the last, are ever demonstrated from this passage alone. None of it's conclusive. And most commentators will admit that. There are some who aren't, who are dogmatic. Many commentators agree that Simon's faith was, uh, those who believe that Simon's faith, faith was false will, will say that it's not conclusive. Simon, to that last point, that Simon only wanted to advance his own interests, the text says he, uh, he wanted the power to lay, uh, to give the Spirit when he laid on his, his hands on the people. So perhaps he wanted to further his own interests. We don't know. All this is to say, they're ascribing motive to somebody where the text doesn't give those motives. Why is that dangerous? Let me ask you this. If you do something or say something and I ascribe a motive to you for saying it that was not your motive, how damaging is that to you? How offended do you get? It's pretty damaging, right? When someone misinterprets a motive by maybe something wrongly said or misunderstood. The text is not clear on a motive. And commentators who interpret Simon's faith to be a false faith have to interpret motive into the text to interpret that, that that way. So I will raise caution in that. The text never gives his motives. Okay? Further, those who argue that Simon's faith was true faith, as was his repentance, say this, that this is an example of a man being regenerated, born again, apart from being sanctified yet. Simon had just been born again. And it's quite natural for him to do what he did because he's still a babe in Christ. <coughs> Simon's practice, past practices in the flesh led him astray in pursuing ministry in a carnal way. Here's one note that I thought was good. Old habits are often powerful and linger. Even with us as true believers, right? How many of us we're perfectly sanctified the moment we're be we believed. Good, I'm glad no one raised their hand. I might go pull out your beard as the Old Testament said. No. Old desires in the flesh are very often active in true believers. Are they not? Even seasoned mature believers, the desires of the flesh raise their head. Even perhaps desires similar to Simon's, lust for power, a longing for notoriety. Who doesn't wrestle with those by chance? So in positively, in making a case that Simon's faith was true, though he definitely sinned, they'll say this. Luke says in verse 9 it is, that Simon previously practiced magic. Well, that word previously seems to indicate what? He's not now. He had repented of his magical practices, though he pursued a spiritual ministry in a carnal way. Okay? Secondly, they'll say this. His statement to Peter, pray to me to the Lord that nothing of what you say may come upon me. If you read that without presupposing he wasn't saved, it doesn't at all indicate a lack of faith or true repentance. We're not told whether Simon prayed at Peter's encouragement. He may have. Right? 
He could have gone and prayed, and he could have simply been asking Peter, intercede for me also. Again, how many of us don't ask fellow Christians to pray for each other? That's all we're told. We're not told of any motivations. I can just as easily interpret this passage that way as I can the other way. Because we're not told. Third, those who argue Simon's faith was false say he was trying to buy the Holy Spirit. He wasn't actually trying to buy the Holy Spirit. What he was trying to buy his way into was the apostolic office. And that's going to... We're going to get to that. He wanted the power to give the Holy Spirit with the laying on of his hands, not the Holy Spirit himself. Number four, Peter's invitation to repent certainly seems like Simon would be a believer, especially if the issue is not assumed to be a salvation issue at all. Right? So, what's the real issue going on here? And then I'll give you my take. The real issue, every commentator talked about this term Simony. Have any of you heard of this term? Let me define this for you. Simony is the sin of paying for possession of a religious office. That term has its very roots right here in this account. Everyone recognizes Simon was trying to buy his way into a prerogative that an office held that he had no part of. This is the issue that we lose sight of when we get distracted wondering whether Simon was a true believer or not. And I can't tell you, all week I was vexed on this because that's where my focus was. Is Simon truly a believer or not? And I was vexed because that's not Luke's point. The text doesn't give us any information. It's the wrong way to start looking at a passage and it's the wrong questions to ask. This issue of simony is a serious threat to the church. Let me give you some reasons why. It's a huge deal. So whether Simon was a true believer or not, we don't know. But that Simon was guilty of this sin in this passage, we do know that. Having the apostolic privilege and prerogative in this matter is what Peter was referring to in verse 21 when he said, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, i.e. he was not chosen as a part of the apostolic group, nor did any lot fall to him to be included as it did in Acts 126. Right? When Matthias was included by the casting of lots, Simon had no part with the apostolic group. It explains Peter's extremely stern rebuke to Simon without squabbling about his salvation. Saved or not, Simon had no idea the trespass that he had just committed. He had no idea how serious of a threat systematically that was to the church. If the church's offices could be bought with money, then all one has to do is to look at, at the church history and see how it's wrecked church after church that gives in to that temptation. As a case in point, what led to the arrest of Jesus? Was it not Satan infiltrating the heart of Judas, one of the twelve, infiltrating their ranks, who then betrayed him? Right? When carnal men, at least, or at worst, wicked, unsaved men, take over the offices of the church, it is guaranteed failure for the church. Saved or not, if they're carnal, at the very least Simon was carnal. Or if they're lost and they get into a church office, the church is done. 
That's why this is such a serious threat. And that's what Peter was after in his stern rebuke. If you remember our study on leadership several months back now, every qualification for an elder, save the one that was a gift of teaching, every qualification dealt with character. Right? The most important thing about a church office and a church leader in that office is the character of the individual. They must be these things. If they are not, do not put them there yet. Doesn't mean they can't be yet. But if they're not, don't, don't do it. So what's disheartening to me is this, that in every single commentary, save one, almost every commentator mentioned the point of simony in, in one little sentence. But only one commentator spoke of its seriousness to any degree because they're focused on whether Simon's a believer or not. And yet this point is the point of the passage. This is, well, I'll save for my application, okay? Because I got ahead. Getting ahead of myself. So the subtle pair. Here, here, here's the one commentator, G. Campbell Morgan. This is why I love him. Any of you who don't read G. Campbell Morgan need to start. He's just, he's fabulous. Anyway, here's how he said it. He said, think of the subtle peril of this suggestion to Peter. How easy it would have been to have agreed to the bargain proposed. This was the peril confronting the early church when a man asked to come into its office in return for money. Continued. Looking back over the history of the Christian church, we see that she has not always resisted. Mark well Peter's almost terrible severity. He says, I have no explanation of that severity save as I believe that he saw the peril both to himself and to the church. Think about that. Simon's proposal to Peter would have ruined Peter. Think of Esau selling his birthright for what? Food. That's what's going on here. The peril was presented to Peter and it would have put the church in peril. Let me find my spot. Thou canst invade spiritualities, he says, with carnalities. If the church believed that today and acted upon it, she might look a good deal, uh, she might lack a good deal she possesses, but would be richer for that lack. You know what he's saying there? The church may lose some of its outward buildings, its land, its prestige, whatever. We might look a lot different, but we'd be the richer for it. That's what he's saying. There is a lack that means power. And there is a possession that means paralysis. That's wonderful commentary. And that's what's going on here. This was Peter's Judas moment. This is the moment Peter was offered his 30 pieces of silver to betray his master. Yet unlike Judas, Peter rejects the silver and stays pure himself, keeps the apostolic office pure, and continues to lead the church in purity. How crafty, think about this, how crafty and yet how subtle at times are the temptations of Satan. Peter, full of the Spirit, has discerned every one of Satan's attacks this far. Isn't that amazing? I said this, this account demonstrates to me the old adage, in a twisted, wicked way, if you can't beat him, join him. 
and you might tag on there, in order to beat them. Persecution didn't stop them. Perhaps Satan will use this tactic to, at a minimum, put in a carnal Christian in leadership, and at worst, put a lost man in leadership. Either way, for Simon to get into the apostolic office is a win for Satan. It doesn't matter, in other words, whether Simon was, was saved or not. This was a threat to the continuation of the church. Let's finish the passage in verse 25. This is wonderful. The apostle evangelist. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, that is to the Samaritans, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. It's a special verse for a few different reasons. Number one, the fact that Peter and John went evangelizing in many villages of the Samaritans on their way back to, to Jerusalem is huge. There was still that old animosity between Jews and Samaritans. Remember, it was John at one time who wanted to call down thunder to destroy him. And what's he doing now? Offering him salvation. But this is also the last we see John. It's the last time he's mentioned. Besides his own writings, he's mentioned in Galatians by Paul. But John will be no more mentioned of in the book of Acts. Let's talk about some applications in this. First of all, in Bible study, it is important. It is important to let the text inform your interpretations, not the other way around. And I was guilty of it this week. I approached this text with the question, is he a believer or not? Wrong question to start with. And I could have missed it. I could have missed Luke's whole point. Be careful to not ascribe things to the text that the text itself does not make explicit. I read some wonderful pastors and commentators who blew me away at the liberties they were taking in infusing the text with things it didn't say. I had to close it and say that's... It's a serious error when we do this. It's how false doctrines eventually will come about. This was honestly probably the biggest application for me that I took away from this. Okay? In fact, it was a moment for me so difficult in trying to interpret this passage when I found what Luke was looking for or saying to us. It was like a floodlight burst upon a dark place. And I saw it. That's how it felt to me. Second, was Simon a Christian or not? My answer, I don't know. I don't know. I can have my opinion. The text itself does not make it clear. If I can hold my opinion, I will hold it loosely. And I'd encourage you to, if you, if you want to pursue that question at all, hold it loosely. The text does not say definitively. It is important to recognize the reality of heretics and false teachers and false brethren. That's an important point. And I get the zeal that pastors who think Simon was one of those have in defending that. The New Testament is full of that truth. Beware of false teachers. Beware of false brethren. Beware of false teaching. It's everywhere. I get that. Jesus himself warned this, that there would be tares amongst the wheat. Did he not? We cannot afford to ignore that truth. My point is that this passage itself doesn't say one way or the other. But also, be aware of setting yourself up to be the judge and justifier of everyone's salvation. You're not. You're not. 
I've seen in churches a kind of salvation Gestapo mentality develop. You know what I'm talking about? There's certain people in our congregation who, hmm, are you really in? When that happens and that attitude grips someone's heart, it quenches the spirit of Christ. It quenches any manifestation of love, joy, and peace that can happen. Beware. Don't let that judgmental eye develop. We are called to inspect fruit, yes. We are not called to pronounce justified or condemned on anyone. Having that critical attitude seriously undermines the work of Christ in any church. Even being fruit inspectors, I said this in my notes, we can be wrong, can't we? Because sometimes Christians produce bad fruit, don't we? Yes. If you were to conclude on a bad day, if you were to come to my house, which I have many, and you walk in on one of those bad days, you'd say, Seth, you need to get saved. (laughs) And I'd say, might be, I don't know. We can have bad fruit. In fact, Peter is a good example of this. Later on, several decades later, Paul had to rebuke Peter, the apostle, for what? Being the hypocrite. In Galatians, Peter fell into hypocrisy still as an apostle. Sometimes the lost seem like they are truly saved. Outwardly, there's nothing about their life that you can just pinpoint something on, right? Man, they're good people. They live their life well, as far as I can tell. It says Paul said that their sins are hidden all the way to the grave. They'll be manifested when they appear before the Lord. That's Jesus' whole point with the parable of the tares amongst the wheat. Tares look just like wheat. It's hard to discern. And then sometimes our own powers of discernment can be faulty. This is why Jesus said, and what he meant when he said, Judge not, lest you be judged. We're not in a place to condemn anyone. That doesn't mean you don't recognize sin, by the way, as the culture will take it. It means you're not in a position of authority to say in or out. That's what that means. And that's what happens with this passage in almost every commentator I read. He's out. No, he's in. He's out. That's not the point, guys. The apostolic office was threatened. By God's grace, Peter caught it and cut it off. So, the Lord, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, is where we need to rest. The Lord knows those who are his. There's so much difficulty as a pastor and overseer of a church to discern issues going on in people's hearts. Sometimes it may mean they're not saved yet. Yes, that will come to light. Sometimes it means, yes, they're saved. They fell into sin. They need to be restored. You deal with it graciously. You work through it very wisely. But don't rush to any conclusions. Last, don't miss the big picture here. Salvation to the Samaritans is an incredible display of grace. Look at how the apostles responded themselves. They were so excited, they went and evangelized more villages. God is moving, and He's moving to people who we once had nothing to do with. Look at the grace of God. That's the big picture here. Let that fill your heart with excitement. Go to those with whom walls once existed between you and they and watch how the gospel will tear them down. Go with this kind of hope. 
Even great men like Simon can be one to Christ. Why? Because Jesus is Lord of all. Look at Paul the Apostle, whom we're about to look at. He was the persecutor of the church, and he's about to become the greatest apostle of all. That's the narrative that's going on with the Samaritans. There are no boundaries with Christ. There is no sin that separates us so far that it can't be reached and wiped clean. That's the power of the gospel. And that's what this story is really about. Even one who was heralding himself as the great power of God came to recognize, I've got nothing on Philip in whom the Spirit of God dwells. So let's pray 